0: in the faith of those that love him. I specify those that love him, for in the context of David's early life, we find his faith growing ever stronger with every test that he faced. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, for we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we see that in David's life. On the other hand, those around him, like his brothers, like King Saul, who's central to this chapter, they don't seem to grow at all from the suffering they faced, from the tests, from the challenges of life that they were facing. In fact, quite the opposite. Suffering, it seems, either accelerates spiritual growth, or it can accelerate spiritual retrogression, depending upon how we handle it. We're going to go one way or the other when we face difficulties in life. We're not going to stay the same. Our faith will either get stronger and will grow, or we're going to fail that test, and we're going to go the direction that we don't want to go. We are seldom, if ever, unaffected by suffering. We either end up more mature as a result, or we go in the opposite direction. One of the most exciting plays in football, in my opinion, is a receiver that goes across the middle and has to go up high in the air to catch a ball, knowing that he's about to be parlayed into tomorrow by some mean defensive back that's going to hit him right when he's up at the top. I think that's one of the most exciting plays in football. Some receivers, when they go across the middle, instinctively knowing that they're going to get hit and knowing that there may be an injury, some of them instinctively back off at the last second. Their hands may touch the ball, but they don't catch it and tuck it. And you can even see it on film. They'll flinch just a little bit before the before the defender ever even gets there. Often, even though they flinch a little bit and don't catch the ball, they're still pummeled into tomorrow. On the other hand, there are some receivers that go across the middle. Typically, we call these all-pro receivers, Hall of Fame kind of receivers. They go across the middle knowing that they're going to get hit. But they also know that their responsibility is to catch that ball. So they catch it, they chuck it, they get hit, they go to the ground. They may or may not be injured, but they caught the ball. Now, you see, both of them got hit. Both of them will go through some pain. But one ends up being a Hall of Fame All-Pro receiver. The other one ends up having a fairly short career. My point is tonight... Hardship is going to come whether we like it or not. It's going to come upon us. Just like that receiver going across the middle is going to get hit whether he catches the ball or not. Doesn't it make sense to go ahead and catch the ball? Because you're going to get hit either way. Why not pass the test? That's what I'm talking about. We're either going to catch the ball spiritually and become all pros, or we're going to drop the ball and we're going to do yesterday's news. But we're going to get hit either way. We cannot avoid suffering in this life. I wish I could tell you we could. There are people out there that do. But they don't have your best interest in mind. They certainly don't have the truth in mind. We just have to look around us. People say, if you're suffering, you're not spiritual. Well, that's baloney. Explain the Apostle Paul's life to me. Explain John's life to me. Explain Peter's life to me. How about David? How about Moses? How about Abraham? All the great giants of the faith that we study. All of them suffered. And they didn't just suffer at times when they sinned. Sure, that came too. But they suffered. And of course, if you could explain them, then I, then I would present my ace in the hole, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never sinned, not one second. It would last us even think that. But then He suffered more than all of them. That's why Paul tells us it's appointed to us not just to believe in Christ, but also to suffer for His sake. We're going to go over the middle. The ball is going to get thrown. We have the ability to catch it with God's help, now, are we going to flinch at the last moment and show a lack of faith, or are we going to catch it? The choice is oh I say, why not catch the ball? Why not pass the test? David's going to pass it. The Israelites, in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, were facing what looked to them, I'm sure, like a disastrous situation as they faced off with the Philistines in the valley of Elah. Not just the Philistines, but this massive champion of theirs, Goliath. Over nine feet tall, David's probably five eight to five ten at the most. Goliath probably well over three hundred pounds of muscle, of experienced warrior. David's probably 17 years old as this chapter begins. And I'm sure he was muscular. But if David was 150 pounds, 160 pounds, 170 pounds, I'd be surprised. So on the surface, it looks like pretty much of a mismatch. But to the Israelites, things had to look pretty bad for them. The Israelites are going over the middle right now. And they've got to decide whether they're going to catch the ball, whether they're going to have faith in Yahweh, or they're going to flinch and lose this whole battle. One man out of all of Israel, at least one is going to come out stronger than he went in. The rest are going to come out weaker, at least for the time period. One thing that's great about God is he tends to give us another test right down the road. We don't wake up in the morning knowing when we're going to be tested. Sometimes I think, I wish I did. And other times I realize it's God's grace that He doesn't tell us. Because we know we're sleep the night before. At least I wouldn't. <laughs> some people could. But I couldn't. If I knew ahead of time that some disaster was going to happen tomorrow, God brings it upon us. But disasters do come. Suffering does come. Testing comes. So we see David's great test in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We covered the first 19 verses in our last lesson. Today we begin in verse 20. And and verse 20 begins with some very familiar words. You've heard these words before. Not the same name, but you've heard these words spoken. So David arose early in the morning. We've heard that phrase before. This is a phrase of obedience and intensity with regard to a suffering situation. David had been told by his father to take some provisions to his brothers who were on the front lines against the Philistines, and he does so without delay. It's reminiscent of Abraham's obedience, isn't it? When God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, the next thing we read is not an argument between God and Abraham. No discussion between Abraham and Sarah. The next thing we read is, he arose early same phrase is used of Jacob after he had his famous dream. So Jacob arose early in the morning. And the text goes on to tell us that he built an altar there and he worshipped at Bethel. These same words are spoken of Moses, of Joshua, and Samuel. And each one of them exhibited faithful obedience to the call of God. David is following in the footsteps of these men by obeying because delayed obedience really isn't obedience, is it? I had the pleasure of teaching each one of my kids to drive. Maybe you've had that pleasure, too. I would like to say that's what turned my hair gray, but it wasn't really. It was gray before I started teaching it. But if I was to take, say, my oldest son, Bruce Jr., out on the freeway, and if I was to say, okay, I want you to drive the speed limit, and I look over, and he's as he's learning to drive, if I look over at the speedometer, and I see that he's going 70, in a 60-mile-an-hour zone over here on Interstate 45 where I know they are policemen all the time, and he's going to get a ticket for doing that, and I say, okay, son, you're driving really, really, really well. Stay in this lane, but back off to 60 miles an hour. If Bruce waited 10 minutes to do that, would any of us in this room call that obedience? I would I call disobedience. Now, this is a hypothetical story. This never happened in my family, but I know a family that it did happen in. That's where I got the illustration from. You see, but delayed obedience isn't really obedience. David is, David is following in the footsteps of other greats of the faith. When we read this phrase, so David arose early in the morning and left the flock with the keeper, and took the supplies and went to Jesse, or went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the circle of the camp while the army was going out in battle array, shouting the war cry. David makes this relatively short, it's probably 12 to 14 miles, this relatively short journey from Bethlehem to the valley of Elah. And then he makes it after leaving his sheep in good hands, so he's a good steward of what he had been given. Once he gets to the camp, he leaves the goods that he brought in good hands, so he's still a steward of that which his dad had given him to bring to the men on the battlefield. After he has secured everything, he makes his way up to the front lines to check on his brothers. He finds them just as Goliath is making his daily track into the valley to taunt the armies of Israel, the armies that David calls the armies of the living God. The men that David encounters there are scared stiff. Verse 26, we read, Then David spoke to the men who were standing by him, saying, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Go, David. This is a young man. He walks up to the front lines. He sees everybody scared to death. And he is appalled by it. He's incredulous. One man, no matter how big he is, one man is taunting the armies of the living God and getting away with it? What's the matter with you guys? Where's your faith, David's asking. Now, it would be one thing if David made that kind of statement simply to motivate somebody else to go out and fight Goliath. Something like Bin Laden. Most people in the world had very little respect for that man. I think even people of his own culture were beginning not to have too much respect because he had no problem sending other people to martyr themselves. But I don't see the big wheels martyring themselves. And I know what they would probably say: well, "We're too important for that." Well, that's not the way it ought to have been in Israel. Saul should have been out there fighting Goliath. The leadership should have taken the, the the primary role. So it would have been one thing for David to say. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to toss the armies of the living God? If he's trying to motivate his brother Eliab to go out there and do it. That's not his motivation. David has every intention of fighting this man himself from the very beginning. And here we get a glimpse of the ascendancy of a man who's going to be a great leader. This is not just someone that says, you go do that. David's not going to ask his men to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. Now, there may come a time in leadership where you ought to delegate and let other people do things. I get that. Totally get that. But you ought not to send anybody into any situation that you weren't at least willing to do yourself. Otherwise, your commands, your your motivational speeches will ring very, very hollow. David is a great leader. We begin to see his leadership skills even now. I want you to notice in this passage, go back to verse 25, and the men of Israel said, have you seen this man coming up? Surely he is coming up to defy Israel. Do you notice the subtle difference between the way they looked at this challenge and the way that David looks at this challenge? As far as the Israelites are concerned, those men on the front lines, Goliath's challenge is an affront to Israel. But as far as David's concerned, Goliath's challenge is an affront to the living God. It's a subtlety. The way David puts it, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who should taunt the armies of the living God? Certainly he includes the men in there. But David's emphasis is God's integrity, God's reputation. Why are you letting this happen? Who is this guy that's got the the armies of the living God completely frozen? That phrase living God, is so important, too. It's the living God who created everything in the first place. It's the living God who's giving Goliath the breath that he's using to taunt the armies of the living God. It's the living God that has sustained David all the days of his life, and everybody else there too. So this is, this is a very challenging question from David. It's not a hollow motivational speech because he intends to go out and do it himself. David is more concerned. His emphasis is on the living God, the only true God, and I think that heart that is one that's after God's own is beginning to manifest itself. Well, then we see the the polar opposite of David. It isn't interesting how in one family you could have two people that are so different, especially when it comes to their views about God. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger burned against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those two sheep in the wilderness? I know your insolence, that word means pride. I know your insolence and the wickedness of your heart. That's the same word, that's the Hebrew word ra, which means evil. I know the wickedness of your heart, the evil of your heart, for you have come down in order to seize the battle. You see, Eliab is accusing him of doing exactly what I said David wasn't doing. He's accusing David of stirring up these people so somebody else will go out there. That's not his intention at all, as we'll see shortly. He thinks he knows his brother. He doesn't have a clue as to the integrity Of his brother. Does Eliab still recoil at Samuel's anointing David instead of him to be the next king of Israel? Because, you know, under that culture, it should have been Eliab, it should have been the oldest. But that whole episode showed us, demonstrated to us, that God is not bound by cultural norms. He picked the one who was going to be the best leader, he could see into the heart. God was more interested in the inside than the outside. David's a handsome man, but David's the youngest. In that culture, that just didn't happen. But remember, in Genesis, it seems to happen all the time, according, in accordance to God's plan. It's almost like he thumbs his nose at cultural norms that he doesn't deem appropriate. God chose who he chose. He looked at the heart, not the outward appearance. David was the youngest, but he is exponentially greater than his older brothers. One should also notice that Eliab belittles David's role that he had been been given by God up until this point. David's the one that takes care of the sheep. Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. Jesus called himself the great shepherd. The shepherds were at the lower end of the social economic totem pole. That job was given to the youngest son in the family. He is belittling him with regard to the role that God had placed him in at that point in his life. And you see that with this sentence that's dripping with sarcasm. With whom had you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You see it. Do you hear it? Those few sheep. That little insignificant job that you do for the family. Who did you get to do that while you were gone? It's the mark of non-achievers to minimize the role or the faithfulness of others. It's the role of non-achievers to minimize the arena that God places someone else in. Petty people put down others with comments like, how's that little ministry of yours going? You know how they throw that phrase in? How's that little ministry of yours going? I'll never forget when I was in seminary, I was walking right past the library one day and it was, I think, my second year in seminary, and I was having a discussion with a lady, I don't remember her name, didn't really know her very well, she just happened to be in one of my classes, and she was saying, well, what are you going to do after seminary? And at that time, I had just been presented with an opportunity to teach at an English speaking school in Basel, Switzerland, Basel, Switzerland, and I thought, well, that'd be a pretty neat thing to do, and so I said, well, the thing that's on my plate right now, the thing that I'm looking into, I'm, I've had some contact with people over in, Switzerland, and I'm strictly considering teaching theology at this seminary over in Boston, Switzerland. And she a really. I said, Yeah, really. So I said, What are you going to do? She says, Well, oh, I'm going to Africa. I'm going to be a medical missionary in Africa. I said, Well, that's, that's pretty tough duty. I made a little joke after that. You know, I'm glad it's you and not me, but i really, I think I'm going to do my mission work where when God calls me. It looks like He's calling me to Boston, Switzerland. And she said, that's not mission work. I said, do tell. And I said, why wouldn't it be mission work? Because you're in Switzerland. It's one of the most beautiful countries in the world. they got they got all the luxuries. I'm going to be out there in the bush. Well, they don't even have bathrooms. I thought, afraid if that's what God called you. and he calls me there, I'm going to go there too. And he has since then on several occasions. He's going to go back there twice this year to Zimbabwe in July. Nigeria in November. Gladly go there, but the idea is, it's it's the mark of non-achievers. It's the mark of petty people to put down a ministry that God has given to someone else. We don't choose what ministries God gives us. If, if we're sensitive about it, God places us in that ministry, whatever it is. And we're all in a ministry in this room, by the way. Some just have more public ministries than others, but we all have a ministry. And our responsibility is not to pick where we're supposed to go, but it's to do the best we can with God's help in the ministry that He gives us. And it is a massive sin for one person to look at another person's ministry and then say, well, who would you leave those two sheep with? Two sheep might hide in. Those sheep were the most important thing in David's life. You can tell how somebody's going to do in a larger arena with how they do in a more modest arena. Had David not been faithful with those few sheep in the wilderness, do you think God would have ever moved him to be the shepherd over Israel? If he couldn't be a shepherd over a few sheep, why would we think that he could shepherd a whole nation? We think, we can just turn it on and off. We don't want to do this because it's insignificant. But if he ever gives me this, then I'm I'm going to really put some effort into that. No, you wouldn't. You're not going to put any more effort into that than you do in whatever God has given you right now. We are called to grow where we're planted. We don't choose our battlefields. God does that for us. But it's our responsibility to be faithful. That's all God asks. To be faithful wherever He's placed us at that particular moment. And God moves the battlefield for us from time to time. At certain times of our life, our battlefield may be in one arena. Our area of faithfulness may be required in one arena. As we move to another arena, maybe it's different. Maybe we get to the end of our life when we find ourselves in a hospital bed or a, a bed in an assistant living home. And we think, well, it's all over for me now. There's nothing for me to be faithful toward. Oh, there is. If you're still living, there is an arena. There's an arena. It may be praying all day if you're flat on your back. It may be asking someone to bring the prayer list from church so I can go through that several times a day. And that's not insignificant. Wouldn't it be rather crude if we walked into someone who's in an assisted living home that's a prayer warrior and we see them with their prayer list out? We say, "Hello, how are you doing with that little prayer list? God will strike people dead for stuff like that. That's where he placed them, and that's where they're being faithful. These subtle put downs are for the birds. I love the way David answers his brother in verse twenty nine. What have I done now? It was just a question. Do you get the idea that these two might have had a discussion or two previously? That this might not be the first time that Eliab had ever put David down? We see that he's undeterred by the criticism. Now watch this carefully. He is not going to let someone who is not in his league knock him off course spiritually. And by not in his league, I don't mean not created in the image of God. But I'm talking about he is not in David's league spiritually. David is not going to let this criticism knock him off course. He knows who he works for. And he knows it's not Eliab. If he doesn't work for Eliab, if Eliab's not the boss, then he doesn't need to be taking this criticism from Eliab seriously. I think we can learn a lot from David. just in these few verses, it's true that there is wisdom and or safety in a multitude of counselors. You've heard that before. I think in Proverbs chapter eleven verse fourteen, Proverbs chapter fifteen verse twenty-two, and chapter twenty-four verse six, all say essentially the same thing. But listen carefully. That is assuming that the counselor has some wisdom to offer. It's fine to ask for advice. It's good to ask for advice. Smart to ask for advice. But we need to be very discriminating as to who it is that we ask. If I was concerned with my nutritional intake, perhaps my fitness, I'm probably not going to ask a guy like this for advice on how much vitamin C I should take every day. You're probably not going to be in in the best position to give me that advice. I might have ask him advice on something else. He looks like he could give me some advice on a toothache. But not with regards to, say, nutrition or fitness. Same way with financial advice. If I'm going to ask for financial advice, I'm going to ask for some financial advice from someone that's demonstrated that they know something about it. Any kind of advice. So when it comes to David seeking advice, he's not going to seek it from Iliad. We need to be careful with this whole idea about counsel. It's legitimate to seek counsel. I just gave you three verses in Proverbs that speak of that. But watch who you seek the counsel from. Make sure that they have some wisdom to impart to you. This is going to sound strange, but it's okay to listen to criticism. It's all right. Just consider the source. I know companies, Ford Motor Company is one of them, that values critical comments above positive comments. Did you know that? Because they can learn so much more about their product from the critical comment. Now, they have to research the comment. They have to make sure that it's not coming from some inappropriate source. But if they can ever find a customer that's going to say, you know, we really think that this stinks on this particular automobile or this truck, then that gives them a lot of information. Eliab is projecting his own failures upon David. He's calling him arrogant. He's calling him somebody who has a wicked heart. If there's anybody in this passage that has a wicked heart, it's not David. It's Eliab. He's pronouncing his own weaknesses. So he turns away from his brother, which is a wise man, and strikes up a conversation with someone else. Quickly, word spreads about this young man. Again, David's probably 17 at the time. And somehow it gets to Saul that David has made these pronouncements, which probably had been paraphrased as bravado. we got this man that's new to camp, and this is what he says he's going to do. I think Saul was probably somewhat relieved at first. Wow. We've got a new guy in camp. David Crockett's come, and maybe David's going to go out and fight Goliath, just like at the Alamo. We've got reinforcements in so I think he must have been somewhat relieved to find that someone was willing to step up and fight Goliath. And so he sends for David. You should remember, though, that this is not the first time Saul has ever met David. David's ministered to Saul in the past. You will he came and went from Bethlehem when Saul would be tormented by this spirit of discontent that God had sent upon him. And David would play his harp for him and calm him down. He would do music therapy in a sense. So Saul recognizes David when he sees him. In chapter 16, verse 21, we learn that Saul loved David because of the ministry that David had performed for him. But we have to assume from some things that are going to be recorded later on in this chapter that Saul doesn't know him extremely well on a personal level. The text says he loved David, but that was apparently just because of what David could do for him. Apparently he had never taken a great personal interest in David. Because as the chapter ends, Saul is going to have to ask, what family is this guy from? Where did he come from? Look at verse 32. And David said to Saul, when they have this meeting, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistines. You look at Saul, a mature king. You have this 17-year-old guy coming in that, that is Saul's music therapist. He says, listen, King, Saul, don't you worry about a thing. I'm going to go take care of him. Now, Saul's heart must have sank at that time. Because he thinks, well, I got somebody that's going to take care of this, and I'm going to send out this kid into battle. He's got to be a little bit conflicted because you remember the terms of Goliath's challenge. I win, we conquer you, you win, you conquer us. So it's a little bit of a chance that Saul is taking. I don't see him being very happy. I think he had hoped for a serious challenger, and what he gets is this music therapist. But David's not going to be turned down. He's serious about this. He makes his case to Saul, and this is not bravado. It's fact. Verse 34, after Saul had just said, listen, you're a kid. You can't go out there. This, This guy, Goliath, has been a warrior from his youth. He's got experience and size on you. Not a good combination. But David said to Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock. He's talking about two separate episodes. I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he arose up against me, I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Think about that for a moment. He's talking about the lion here because the bear doesn't have a beard. He takes this lion and grabs him by the hair underneath his chin and either hits him with his fist, or also a possibility he hits him with the, the rod that he had. Either way, he's face-to-face with those teeth from this lion. And David's knocking the heck out of it. One time when I was I'd just started college, my brother and I were out on a golf course after all the golfers were finished, and we were throwing the ball. Before we threw the ball, I went and tied my my dog, who I brought with us, around a, a big oak tree. When I looked down at the big oak tree, there was a very large copperhead that was sunning himself. Now, there were some apartment complexes, or not apartments, but townhomes right nearby, perhaps only 50 feet away. And, and I don't particularly care for snakes. I know a couple of you do, or your husbands do. Forgive me for this. But, but I backed off very, very gently, and I called to my brother. And I said, Tom, we got to do something with this snake. There's kids that live over there. We can't. We can't just let this snake go he said, what do you want to do? I said, well, I think we should kill it. He said, well, where are we going to kill it with? I said, well, there's got to be a stick around here somewhere we can kill this snake with. So I found the biggest stick that I could find. It's probably about 10 feet long. that had a fork on the end of it. I said, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pin him down and you go up and you beat him on his head. The problem was the only stick that Tom could find was about this long. And so I pinned him and the, copper, you know, the, the copperhead just opens his mouth, and he's looking for who he's going to bite because we've interrupted his nap. And I don't forget the, side of this, uh, the scene of this 14-year-old boy doing what his brother told him to do. And he went down there, and he was just beating, <laughs> beating that copperhead like that. When they're sick, you didn't know about that, did you? Until the, until the copperhead, well, you got to wait until there's a statute of limitation on these things. I won't tell you how long ago that was, but it was a long time ago. He killed it. He kept him until it was dead. I kind of picture that with David. He's got to, he's got to be really pounding this. Lion, lions don't kill easily. What he's telling says, I've been here before. The implication is, I'm this little old David. I'm not going to kill a lion unless God's with me. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 36, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he's taunted the armies of the living God. You think David's a little exorcised about that? He doesn't particularly care for what Goliath is saying toward Israel. The bear must have been a Syrian bear, which is of the black or brown bear family. It's sounded like a big grizzly bear. But here what David is saying is that he is defending the integrity of God. He gets back to that point again. He can't get over this Philistine that's going to taunt the armies of the living God. So he said, this Philistine is going to be just like that bear and just like that lion. I hope you would agree that it's pretty much of a mismatch for one human being to fight a bear. Your best bet is to try to get away from that bear as quick as you can. It's another bit of a mismatch for a human being to go up against a lion. David's just saying, I've been in mismatches before. He's defending the integrity of God. God is the one that's been insulted. God will fight through David. Well, Saul convinced enough to let David represent Israel in the fight, but I don't think Saul, at this point, really has a serious clue as to what's going on. Yes, he's going to say, the Lord be with you. I I know that. But he doesn't really, really get it. I think he's persuaded more by David's feats of strength than he is David's relationship with the Lord or his own relationship with the Lord. The reason I say that is if he fully got it, if he fully understood what David was saying, that the reason that I can go fight this giant is because I've already fought other giants and because God's with me. If he really understood that, what do you think Saul would have done? If he really got it, if he owned that concept, he would have said, you know, son, you're right. Stand aside. i got some business to take care of with this man. But that's not what he does. Instead, he says, come here, I'll get you some armor. And he dresses him up in his armor. The armor doesn't fit, which tells me that Saul is either significantly bigger or significantly smaller David, I think he's significantly bigger than David. Paul doesn't recognize that in reality or metaphorically, you can't fight your battles with somebody else's armor. And you can't fight your spiritual battles with somebody else's faith. You have to develop your own. Now don't miss verse forty. And he took his stick in his hand. David recognized that, so he turns down the armor. You know that. So he, in verse 40, And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag in which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David does take a weapon. It's not like David just walks out there and says, May God strike you dead. He does take a weapon. He takes the weapon that he's familiar with, The whole thing about the five stones, there's a lot of different opinions about it, but it's all just different opinions. Some people say that David took five stones because Goliath had four brothers. Perhaps he was going to have to kill them, too. That's a possibility. I mean, some very fine Old Testament scholars hold that. I would tend to lean with some other Old Testament scholars that believe that the reason he took five stones was if he missed, he wanted to have another bullet in the gun. Then just take one bullet. Either way, he takes a weapon. Now, something that's kind of left... Behind, and we'll study it next week when we talk about Goliath's taunt to David directly. He takes the he takes the staff with him, too. It's not going to be a part of the battle, but he takes the staff with him too. And he doesn't hold back. He takes the fight to the Philistine. He doesn't wait for the next round. He doesn't say, Well, I'm going to rest up tonight and see if we can't settle this in the morning. He takes the fight to the Philistine. He had to know, though, as he went out on that battlefield, that it would be next to impossible for him to defeat a heavily armed, extremely experienced giant of a warrior with just a slingshot and a staff. The people that were watching him from the hill probably looked at each other and said, well, good luck to him. Let's get ready to fight because there's no way he's going to win this. And there was no way he could win it. No way. Unless God was on